Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Richard Blake, a partner at Wilson Sonsini Goodrich and Rosati and the leader of the firm's public companies practice. We discuss his firm's 2023 Silicon Valley 150 corporate governance report, where we review several topics, including the evolution of virtual meetings, board committee structures, diversity, dual-class share structures, ESG disclosures, compensation, shareholder activism, and much more. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod, or you can subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. The Boardroom Governance Podcast is sponsored by the American College of Governance Council. The ACGC is a professional association of lawyers and academics in the U.S. and Canada, widely recognized for the expertise and achievements in the field of corporate governance. The ACGC was founded by some of the most prominent U.S. corporate governance lawyers, and today the organization includes over 150 practitioners and academics. The ACGC's mission is to promote a high level of professional standards among governance lawyers, along with a better understanding and broader adoption of best practices within business organizations. You should check out their website at amgovcollege.org. That is A-M-G-O-V-C-O-L-L-E-G-E.org. Richard, it is so good to see you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast. We are reconnecting after many years, so it's good to see you. And I love the Silicon Valley 150 Corporate Governance Report, and we're going to dive into that because I think there are really interesting findings. Evan, it's great to reconnect, and I really appreciate the invitation. And this is one of my favorite topics, so happy to happy to jump in. <laughs> all right, that's great to hear. So first of all, Let's talk about your professional academic background so people that don't know you can get to know you a little bit better. Tell us where you're born, where you grew up, and we'll start from there. Well, it's really interesting because I, I live in Silicon Valley now. I was actually born here in Palo Alto mm. uh, a long time ago. My father was uh, a rocket scientist with Lockheed Martin back in the Apollo days. Wow. Um, and so I was born you're here. You're a pure lineage of Silicon Valley. <laughs> I really am. Although... Although my, you know, and I, I've never forgiven them for it. My parents moved uh, away from Silicon Valley when I was very young. So I didn't grow up here. I lived on the East Coast in Washington and in South Carolina, and then went to high school, college, and law school in Utah. Uh-huh. Um, went to BYU, both for, for undergrad and, and law school. Met my wife as an English major, and we both got our English majors and then went across the street to the law school and got our law degrees together. <laughs> Um, I clerked for a couple of years out of law school uh, for a year with a, a state Supreme Court judge in Utah, uh, Dan Stewart, and then uh, in San Diego on the Ninth Circuit with former Chief Judge Wallace and had a great experience doing that. But I, I had summered with Wilson Sonsini in the late 90s, and I, I joined Wilson Sonsini as I had planned to in the fall of 2000, right when the internet bubble burst. Mm. Um, and so it was an interesting time to, to start. Um, but I, I always knew I wanted to practice corporate law. I was really excited to have the opportunity to practice it here in Silicon Valley. And, and I've made a whole career of it. So yeah, no, that's great. And it's really interesting because a lot of people, when they come to Silicon Valley, I think it's a common feeling that they feel 
that they came in the wrong time, that they missed the wave. <laughs> and so I'm sure that as you were coming in, just late 90s, there was all this dot-com frothiness, but you came in and, and you said, oh, shoot, I missed by a few years. Uh, that's exactly how I felt at the time. But having been here now for you know 23 and a half years, I've seen the waves <laughs> come and go. Yeah, um, And sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. And and when it's down, you sort of freak out and you're like, man, are yeah. we ever going to have IPOs again? <laughs> um, and they always come back. It's just a matter of time. And that's sort of where we are right now. But it's it's helpful to sort of see see the ups and the downs. Um, and, and you learn to appreciate both. It's, it's sort of interesting because it was sort of in one of those down periods when my, my career path veered towards what I do currently. I sort of came to Silicon Valley thinking, oh, I'm going to do venture deals. I'm going to do some IPOs. I'll do some mm -hmm. M&A. Back in the days, that's sort of what everybody did. They did a little bit of everything. But in 2002, in the wake of a few corporate scandals, Congress did what it always does, and it, it passes a law mm -hmm. to fix things, right? And Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002. And I remember a couple of partners came to me. I was still a fairly junior associate at the firm. And they said, Richard, you 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 clerked, didn't you? You're sort of a scholarly, academic kind of person, aren't you? Well, go make sense of this law and tell us what we need to tell our clients. And so I, at a very young age, as, a, as an attorney, I was sort of thrust into figuring out Sarbanes-Oxley and helping our clients understand it. And that sort of launched me into working pretty much exclusively with public companies. I, I do IPOs. I, I, I help late stage private companies get ready for IPOs. But based on Sarbanes-Oxley, I sort of turned my career towards the public company practice. And that's I chair our public company practice today. And I also chair the NASDAQ Listing Council, which mm. which advises the board of directors of NASDAQ on, on corporate governance issues and also hears appeals from companies who are being delisted. Mm -hmm. um, so I really, this is sort of my focus is, is helping public companies govern themselves and helping them disclose the things that they need to disclose with the SEC and keep in the right path with the NASDAQ and the NYSE and deal with activists if they come up and deal with financings and M&A activities if they come up as well, but mostly on the governance side. That's really interesting because Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002 is where a lot of people started focusing on corporate governance. If you look at the long arc of governance in this country and there's like this new wave of requirements for independent directors. So it's, you know, you cut your teeth right into this new corporate governance focus. I really did. And I I had worked with some public companies already in my practice. Uh, and I really enjoyed working. I was lucky. I, I you know, Autodesk, which is a great um, design software automation company here. I got to work with Pixar when mm -hmm. it was still a public company. I did the merger with Disney. So I was really lucky to work with some really cool, uh, amazing Silicon Valley public companies early in my career. And it's only just continued. And and I do think you're right. I think Sarbanes-Oxley saw, you know, I think, I think a handful of companies were focused on governance before Sarbanes-Oxley, but obviously by requirement, all of them had to be focused on corporate mm. governance after that. And and I sort of wrote, I've ridden that wave for the last 20 plus years in my practice. Yeah, no, that's great. So tell us about the origin of this new report called the Silicon Valley 150. It only focuses on the top 150 Silicon Valley public companies. So give us a little bit of when it started and what's the focus and mission of this report. Yeah, so... A number of years ago, uh, there were a handful of of groups that were putting out reports on IPOs, mm -hmm. and 
And I sort of at the firm at Wilson Sonsini started an IPO report um, that sort of focused on disclosure and governance um, topics around companies that were going public. And uh, I spent a little bit of time away from Wilson Sonsini at another law firm. And when I came back in 2019, our managing partner, Doug Clark, said, we have other people who are working on the IPO report. It's going great. But what I want to see is, is Wilson Sonsini put out a report on public company corporate governance. Hmm. And so there's a couple of the firms and groups. Obviously, there's a lot of different surveys. The auditing firms do them. You know, uh, NACD has reports. There's all sorts of, of people who do reports. And so I wanted to do something that was particularly useful for the technology and biotechnology companies that are the heart of what Wilson Sonsini represents, not mm -hmm. just here in Silicon Valley, but frankly, all over the world. But we thought that using the Silicon Valley 150, which is the 150 companies with headquarters in Silicon Valley, ranked by revenue, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the amount of revenue that they bring in on an annual basis, that was going to be a fairly good proxy for technology companies around the United States generally and sort of what the governance uh, and disclosure habits of those companies are. And so, and what we thought, what we saw was, you know, the top 50 of those companies are some of the larger, you know, big market cap companies. It's the sure. Apples and the HPs. The Magnificent Seven, right? Well, that's exactly right. right. That's exactly, some of some of which are headquartered in Silicon yeah. Valley still, and some of which have moved their headquarters. Right. And that's one of the things that our our survey has focused on over the last couple of years. The middle fifty are kind of kind of the middle pack, and then the bottom fifty are a lot of them are newly public companies. A lot of them are lower cap, uh, but but still fairly large you know, sizable public companies, they're hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, even at the, uh, even at the very bottom. But we thought that if we looked at corporate, the corporate governance based on those three categories, sort of top 50, middle 50, bottom 50, as well as years from the IPO, it would help companies get a sense for, okay, if I'm sort of in this part of the pack and these, I'm this sort of number of years away from IPO, this is what my governance should look like compared against my peers. Mm -hmm. And so, we started looking at, we, we took their 10Ks, uh, their proxy statements. We looked at their certificates of incorporation, their bylaws, their governance guidelines, their committee charters. And we started looking at, at different aspects of their governance. And since 2019, we've put out a report every year on, on what, and what that looks like and, and what those, what those companies look like. So for instance, uh, we talk about board size and, the number of independent directors, the number of female directors, the mm -hmm. age and the tenure of the directors. Um, we look at the executive officers of the company and, and who is an executive officer at various companies. We look at defensive measures like dual class, like mm -hmm. classified board, et cetera, like proxy access, which is something that is, has come up in the time that I've been practicing. We've tried in the, in the more recent years to focus on activism and on ESG disclosure, because mm -hmm. those things are becoming even more important. We also look at executive compensation. Um, and we try to do it, we try to look at these topics in a way that that other reports don't necessarily look at. And again, with the focus of, of the Silicon Valley 150 as a proxy for technology and biotechnology companies around the world. Okay. No, that's great. And we'll we'll dive into many of these topics and findings that you have that I think interesting. But first, let me ask you what findings were the most surprising or unexpected in this year's report? 
<laughs> this may be a boring answer, mm -hmm. but but there but there wasn't anything that was necessarily surprising. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing that th there's been a trend recently that we have seen that has only just continued in this last report. I think if you had if we had had this podcast a year ago and we were talking about the 2022 report, the thing that stood stood out to me at the time was the number of companies below the top 50 that were really digging in hard on ESG. Mm. And I think as a as a movement, ESG has really been something that that our public companies have had to focus on and have had to disclose. Um, the top 50, you know. Year, you know, when we started this and started looking at ESG a few years back, they were doing it. They were putting out an annual report on sustainability. They were putting out information in their proxy statement about ESG. The middle 50, the bottom 50, not as much. In 2022, those numbers just skyrocketed for the middle 50 and for the bottom 50. And those trends have only continued in 2023. So it wasn't surprising to me to see that in 2023. But I, I think what's going to be interesting. You know, I get the question all the time. Well, right now there's sort of a counter anti-ESG movement. Right, there's a backlash. Yeah. <laughs> what What is that? What effect is that going to have on ESG? And I think, for the time being, I'm not sure it's going to have a tremendous effect downwards. I think we're going to see companies have sort of gotten to a point with disclosure that they want and disclosure that they think their stockholders want to see, and that their employees, frankly, in the communities in which they live, want to see. Um, and I think that's going to sort of stay as a status quo for a little bit. I think everybody's also sort of waiting to see what the SEC does with mm -hmm. climate disclosure, which they've been promising for years, but but have not quite had the chance to do. And so nobody's really wanting to to make dramatic additional you know steps on disclosure for ESG until they sort of hear what the SEC has to say. So kind of a boring answer. Yeah. Not, but not let me a, ask not... you a follow up to that. So is it maybe, and it's not in your uh, report just because you're focusing on Silicon Valley companies. But if you compare or contrast Silicon Valley maybe with other states that are red states that are really pushing the anti-ESG, let's say Texas or Florida or Louisiana or others, do you think those companies, the practices are very different and Silicon Valley just has become, you know, let's call it a blue state and, you know, are, are, are focusing on ESG or, you know, it's a little bit of a political question. And But based on your data, what what, what do you think about that? It's a great question. Uh, I think the state where the company's headquartered has something to do with it, but not everything, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think the ESG movement is really being pushed by investors. Mm -hmm. And so those in you know it, it probably depends more on where the investors of those mm -hmm. of those companies are located. And so because you know even if the company's headquartered in Texas or what have you, uh, that doesn't mean that that's where all their investors are, and their investors are going to be pushing. And by the way, some of the some of the companies with large presence in Texas are oil companies, and and right. their their investors specifically want to see more information on climate. Um, and so you're sort of in a you're sort of in a in a catch twenty two there, where the state where you're headquartered isn't necessarily what's going to be driving it. Really, what's driving it is what your investors want to see. You know, it's interesting. The other thing I, I noticed, uh, I think a 22 report, you had five companies change their headquarters. And <laughs> I can think of Tesla going to Texas and Palantir going to Colorado, I think. Those companies are no longer in this list, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, there have been a few, and we had a few in, in 2023 as well. I think 
I mean, but it there, went from eight to two, so a clear decrease. That that's right. I think that's right. I think that th there's a lot of reasons why companies want to change their headquarters. Again, we're not talking about the state in which they are incorporated, right. because in that case, most of them still are Delaware because mm -hmm. of the the well-established corporate law that there is in Delaware. But I think the headquarters location is one that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one. I think many people will remember that in the early 2020s, California was requiring companies headquartered in California, public companies headquartered in California based on what they used as their principal executive offices on the cover page of their 10K to have a certain number of diverse directors and to disclose that publicly. Um, I think there was a, at that time, there were a number of companies who were a little bit upset about that but they were also upset about taxation in California. Mm -hmm. And I think as a combination of those factors, I don't know that it was any one thing, but I think all of the things, you know, the, the diversity disclosure that was required, which has since been, you know, um, struck down in court as unconstitutional, mm -hmm. although the appeals for those cases are still pending. Um, I think between the diversity disclosure and the, uh, the the tax structure that we have here in California, companies were wanting to take a different look. I think there's also a movement towards having no sort of specific headquarters. I think in the post-COVID mm. world, there's a number of companies that have said, we want to dramatically reduce the footprint of our real estate. Our employees like working from home. They're productive working from home. And so we're going to- That's the case of back. Coinbase, correct? That's right. There's a handful of other companies, you know, I think So is Coinbase in your list or not because they are unlisted in in terms of headquarters? Uh well, we look from a headquarters standpoint um yeah, as I you know, we pull that that information comes from the silicon uh from the the Lonergan report which we use uh -huh. as the as the fundamental base. I think they're looking at 10k disclosure as well. I you know, I don't think Coinbase is one of is in the top. Mm -hmm. Um and 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 neither I think is square. I'm just checking mm. because they also have a even though they have a headquarters location that's listed as a as a California address, mm -hmm. they're also they're also diversified. Um, square, which is block now. <laughs> correct. Yeah, I I I still have, <laughs> but both of them, neither of them are listed on on the list because of you know Got it. among other reasons because of their where they claim their headquarters to be or not to be. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's it's maybe also uh, founder uh, decisions that you know have strong personalities, and we, we've seen now Elon kind of <laughs> uh, saying to every. So from the 150 companies that you have listed, 143 are listed in Delaware. That's a massive percentage. And the question now, maybe I can ask you now before we dive into your data is: This week, Elon Musk was. Uh, his compensation was rejected uh, or struck down by the court, uh, the Delaware Chancery Court. And he's saying, well, I recommend every company to delist from Delaware, go to te Texas or go to Nevada. What do you think about this whole thing? I mean, you obviously have uh, seen your share of corporate governance, but do you think there's anything? It's the first time that I see some pushback and, and it may be driven by the most relevant founder, big following, but what do you think about that? You know, I think that um, D Delaware is, I think is known as the, the, the most company favorable jurisdiction that there is. Mm -hmm. um, 
And we should define that it's shareholder friendly, right? It, it is shareholder friendly, but it's also company friendly in that, you know, if a decision meets the qualifications of the business judgment rule, Delaware is just not going to rethink that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they give an extreme amount of deference to directors, um, except in, when there's circumstances of, of self-dealing or some other allegation conflict, of yes. a breach, exactly a conflict or what have you. Uh, at which there's higher standards, but still a lot of deference to the company and to its board. I think what Elon has said is interesting. I don't know how well established the Texas corporate <laughs> laws are because there's just not that many companies headquartered in Texas. Um, and I will say that given like every state has fiduciary duty requirements mm -hmm. uh, and 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 requirements dealing with conflicts of interest and 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 what have you. And those states with corporate codes that are not as well established as Delaware, or at least there's not as many judicial decisions around Delaware. I will say that the interesting thing is a lot of those state Supreme Courts, when they look to governance issues, they kind of take a look at what Delaware does right, because right. it is more established. And so judges love precedent. And and if the, if the corporate code isn't specific about something, I think they often look to Delaware. And at least, at least for guidance as to what a Delaware company might do, because it's got the most established jurisprudence. Yeah, you know, and, and just before we dive into uh, all the data, I mean, one way to look at this is here you have the state, California, Silicon Valley, the most innovative state. 143 of them are listed in Delaware. And if you just look from a historical perspective, it is kind of strange that all the disputes that happen with these companies are resolved by the small state in Delaware and not in California. Uh, and that is you know, part of another discussion, which is more legal. And I think that's something that may change, but I don't see it changing just because uh, I think it's such a strong precedent. Delaware has built its brand around this. I think it's right. We're, we're very lucky at our firm to have uh, not only, you know, several former chancellors and vice chancellors from the Chancery Court who are our partners, um, a former Supreme Court judge who was our partner until his untimely death last year. Um, we actually have several of our partners who have left the firm and, and gone to be in the Delaware courts. And so mm. we have a fantastic Delaware office. There is just a lot of certainty mm. uh, that comes and consistency with having uh, one state be the state of 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 incorporation for so many of our companies because it just gives us a lot of it helps us work through thorny legal issues with more certainty uh, because there's just more case law that we've seen and we have a better understanding of what of of what the Delaware courts are going to do uh, when faced with different questions. Yeah. Okay. Let's go into the report. Let me start with board matters. So. Virtual meetings, which uh, started really in the pandemic, have stayed with boards. Tell us a little bit about what did you find in terms of uh, virtual meetings versus uh, physical board meetings? Yeah, we we are seeing a trend over the last several years that, that virtual meetings are here to stay. I think if done correctly, uh, giving the stockholders the opportunity to ask questions, uh, if they can prove that they're a stockholder, um, the flexibility where you can have it be audio only versus you know video, um, it, it, there is a lot of advantages to it. Again, if done correctly, it's possible to hold a virtual meeting and to basically shut stockholders out 
Um, and so, and, and so that you 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 can essentially ignore them, right? Um, in terms of asking questions or the opportunity to 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 be with management. Let me ask you to clarify. So you have board meetings that are maybe virtual, and you have stockholder meetings that are virtual. How do you see the difference between those two? Uh, well, we've always, I mean, like, yes, companies will frequently meet in person for their meetings at least once a quarter or so. Although I think many companies have not moved 100% to virtual. They did during the pandemic, but there's always been the case that that there were virtual board meetings. There were special meetings that came up where it just didn't make sense to fly everybody in um, and you'd have to have them on the spur of the moment. So they were often telephone calls. I remember at the beginning of my career getting very good at dialing into a telephone conference call because I was doing it all the time. But a lot of those meetings are now on 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 a like a platform like Zoom. But the 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 stockholder meetings pre-pandemic, most of them were happening in person. Mm-hmm. And that meant that, you know, if the, the stockholders of a particular company wanted to attend the annual meeting, they had to fly to the location of that meeting. Um and and with some companies like Berkshire Hathaway, where the entire city of Omaha becomes, you know, sort of a location for people to go to. Yeah, when, that's that's when a, if, sixty thousand people, right? It's a that's stadium. right. Yeah. Or or Disney or ones like that. Like there was always sort of a tradition, a history of a lot of people flying in and and making it making an event of it. But but a lot of the small cap companies, nobody would show up for the annual meeting, and the virtual meetings are just they're they're much easier logistically to to handle. They provide access for any stockholder who wants to dial in. It's very easy to do so, um, and and again, if done right, and you 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 use the benefits of the platform, you can make it so that anybody can ask a question and and get an answer. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's that's a good insight into how boards and stockholder meetings have evolved. The second topic that I think is very interesting is how board committees are structured. So yeah. to level set. Under Sarbanes-Oxley, right? You need to have an audit committee. You need to have a compensation committee and nomination governance committee, which are 100% independent, typically three members per committee. But now there's been a call for other committees, right? So some topics have crept up into the importance of the board and ESG is one of them. Cybersecurity is another. Human capital development is another. You can also think about other topics such as AI now, which yep. you know your data may not be there, but I'm sure people are thinking about this. Where do you fit it? Uh, compliance and other issues. So tell us about how you've seen the evolution of committees and and you know any trend around this. Yeah, there have definitely been some trends in the last five in the last five years. I think if you look at our our report in 2019, the number of board committees other than audit, comp, and non-gov, there just weren't that many. There were a handful. Um, but but just not that many of them. In the last five years, and one of this is why we started tracking this, we have seen, and, and by the way, and at, and at that time as well, topics like ESG and human capital management and others were being handled at the board level, not necessarily at right. the community level. Mm-hmm. Um, even five years ago, I think there, you know, cybersecurity, there was a push for audit committees to keep an eye on it, given the close relationship between controls and uh, internal processes in IT and the audit committee. And so five years ago, even we were seeing 
companies put in their audit committee charter, audit has responsibility for cybersecurity. But over the last few years, we've seen a lot of companies take ESG and human capital resources and put them in a committee. And, and part, you know, and for ESG, a lot of times the NomGov committee has it, although there are companies, if their ESG metrics require by the company, it's not required by law yet to have some sort of assurance and other aspects around climate uh, data and what have you, you know, greenhouse gas emission disclosure that the company's putting, they'll put they'll have audit be responsible for those sorts of things, uh, given the closeness to working with outside auditors and what have you. But a lot of a lot a lot of a shift towards ESG getting handled by NomGov and human capital resources, which is frankly another aspect of ESG getting handled by Comp. Over the last five years, we have also seen, particularly with companies who are reliant on cybersecurity and on privacy, the evolution of a separate board committee, which is not required to be independent, mm -hmm. um, a, a privacy and cybersecurity committee. And probably in the last three years, the number of those committees has probably tripled overall. It just almost keeps doubling every year. So especially with the SEC rules that went into effect at the end of last year, requiring additional disclosure around cybersecurity, there is an enhanced desire in, in specific companies to have a separate committee outside of audit to be to be looking at cybersecurity and keeping an eye on, on the company's policies, processes, procedures, improvements, mm -hmm. controls around that. So that, that's something that companies are really focusing on. And I sort of, you know, as I guide companies with this, the question is, okay, when a new topic comes up, it should be covered at the board level. The board obviously has oversight over the entire company, including the entire risk profile of the company. Right. Um, but when a topic is and ends up taking up too much time in the boardroom and taking up too much board attention, then it's time to think about delegating to a, to a specific committee, either an existing committee that the company already has, or in the case of some companies with with privacy and cybersecurity, starting a new committee. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned what is a hot topic and you've seen many cycles and I can remember several of new technologies, but AI seems to be like the new big thing. Do, do you see people thinking about this and where do you see them putting it in committees or, or is it just remaining in, in one of the current committees? It, it is crucial for companies to talk about AI at the board level and, and to ask about Okay, how is the company using AI? Is it using AI to code their their software products? Is it using AI uh, in their products itself? Is there some aspect of AI being used in, in in the product or the hardware of the company itself? What are the risks of AI from a competitive perspective? What are our competitors doing? So it's important that the board talk about those topics overall. I have not seen many companies yet sort of uh, delegate that oversight authority to a specific committee. Um, at this point, um, the board's oversight of it has typically been handled at the board level itself, and I haven't seen a committee yet. Um, but as with, like you said, the hot topic of the day, you often see boards end ending up delegating authority over it to a specific committee. I, I think there are companies who have technology committees not not that not that many, but a handful. Mm -hmm. and you can see a technology committee or or something like it, or pot potentially, you know, the privacy cybersecurity uh, committee if they have a separate one, sort of handling AI aspects. Given a little bit of overlay there, but okay. but at this point, we're seeing a lot at the company itself and not a committee. Well, one thing you can think about is if AI becomes uh, as relevant as 
everyone is saying it's going to become cybersecurity doubles up or triples up in importance because everything is going to be AI and and then cybersecurity is is even more important. Let 100%. me ask you let, let me ask you about a different trend. You, you you mentioned the Nasdaq responsibility. So Nasdaq has a, a board diversity rule and there's been as you mentioned a shift in board diversity in California there was state level regulation for gender and minorities but Nasdaq as a national exchange also has a diversity rule which I understand is also being challenged in court but my question to you is how have you seen the evolution of board diversity from your reports and you know where do we stand and where did this group of Silicon Valley 150 stand vis-a-vis you know national standards yeah. So it's interesting, the the California mandate was actually a requirement that you have a certain number of diverse uh, directors. And if you didn't, you were subject to fine, even though Mm -hmm. California never put into place the rulemaking necessary to actually find a company over this. It was mostly public shaming, as it were, uh, because they did put out an annual report saying who, who was in compliance and who was not in compliance. Those rules, as I said, got struck down. They're still being challenged, but the quota aspect of those rules make it very difficult. The NASDAQ rule is a also a, a soft requirement to either have a, a specific number of diverse directors or to explain why you don't. Right. So Comply or explain. And- comply or explain is exactly the phrase that we use. Those rules were held up by the, by the traditionally conservative Fifth Circuit. I think they're still trying to get it reheard on bank, but those rules were held up, and and we now today have a comply or explain regime with the Nasdaq, and we in the report we go into details about the compliance and and what what that showed. I think again, it's interesting. Most information that companies disclose either comes because of an SEC mandate or because their investors want to see it. And so they start asking for it. So even before the NASDAQ put their rule in place, even before California put its rules in place, investors were asking for more disclosure on diversity. And and when things are, and and also for commitments from companies to seek more diverse directors when they were looking for more directors. So this is something that I think there's been a lot of research on. There's a lot of advantages to having diverse directors. And by the way, I, I think there's advantages, I mean, diversity broadly defined, not just racial, ethnic, gender, LGBTQ, diversity, but also diversity of background on the board, people who have been operators at the highest levels at companies, people who have had insight into government, um, people who are technologists, people who are finance people. Like you need all sorts of different views on a board. Um, I think I think the rules, the California rules, the NASDAQ rules, the pressure from investors has led to boards becoming more diverse. We're seeing continued numbers continue to inch higher towards more diversity. The one interesting thing is- And that number is now 33%. Correct. On gender diversity. Correct. We're not seeing the same level of diversity when it comes to chief executive officers. Mm -hmm. We We are still lagging way behind. On executive officers as a whole, CFOs, general counsels, chief revenue officers, chief operating officers, we're seeing better gender diversity, Mm. uh, but still not at the highest at the CEO level. Getting a little bit better with CFOs, but but we're still lagging at the highest levels. And I think those numbers will continue to grow slowly. 
Right. And those numbers, I looked at them, about 5% of the CEOs are women and about 22% of the C-level executives are women. So lower than the director number, which is 33%. Uh, another issue that is very Silicon Valley, or at least considered to be a tech issue, is dual class share structures. Yeah. And so uh, you have their data on multi-class or dual class, because now we have companies with three types of classes of shares, or even four in the case of Airbnb. It shows that about 30% of these companies have dual class share structures. And interestingly, about 91% of them have sunset provisions, which is a way to end the dual clause by a certain event, maybe time lapsed from IPO or another event like death of a founder or some founder leaving. How have you seen this trend of dual clause shares? Let's call it from since Google, right? Because Google was the first tech company to implement in 2004, but that number has crept up. It's crept up. A lot of founders want to go public so that they can take advantage of the benefit, you know, advantage of the, all the positives of being public, like your employees who you've tried to compensate with equity instead of cash for all these years are now able to go sell their equity. You're able to do acquisitions based on equity instead of using your precious cash resources. So there are advantages to being public. The, the, the difficulty of being public is you lose control. You lose control of the stockholders end up, you know, voting every year on who the directors are going to be and whether they agree with the pay, the, you know, when, when they have a say on pay vote, whether they agree thumbs up or thumbs down on the executive pay that, that the company is giving. And so dual class, particularly for founders who at the time of the IPO still like actually have control of the company instead of having it be well distributed out to the VCs who have invested, um, dual class is a way for them to maintain control over the company for a longer period of time. I think the and by the way, I think dual class is here to stay. I think there's a lot of question. Okay, we've had a, a large shortage of IPOs, ton of IPOs in 2020, 2021, even into 20, a little bit less in 2022, a lot less in 2023. I think when the IPOs come back, we're still going to see dual class. But I think investors have said, that's fine. We, we get it. We're going to let you have control for a period of time, but there's got to be a sunset. Mm -hmm. And 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 the sunset that a lot of companies are doing is a time-based sunset. Um, I think 10 years ago, 10 years was viewed as a reasonable sunset. Um, I think any more investors really would rather see a five or a seven-year sunset. Um, and so I think investors are okay with it as long as there is a sunset. I think investors still would, you know, when they when they look at it, and over time, when when more of the public owns the stock, and the sh the number of shares that the founder owns is not economic control, you know they they view voting control should follow, and so there's still you know a backlash from from institutional investors, but not enough to make the whole topic go away completely. Dual class is here to stay, but I think with reasonable sunsets is what we're going to see. Yeah, and one thing to to note here is that. Every company that has dual clause share structures has a different flavor. That's right. So uh, voting between the founders, one founder, the types of sunsets, you know, some have, as I said, a class of share that has zero votes. Others have 10 to one, some have 50 to one. So I think it's very important to look at the small detail there. You know, one argument that people have called uh, dual clause share structures is to avoid uh, shareholder activism. And so in your yeah. report, you have shareholder activism there. 
I noticed that 8% of the Silicon Valley 150 had some level of activism. Can you talk a little bit about your findings there in terms of what's uh, the activist uh, playbook with these companies? Yeah, activism is obviously also here to stay. I think there were, you know, a year ago, the SEC put into effect some rules called universal proxy. And, and what that means is when there's a proxy fight and activists, which is the highest form of hostile activism, mm -hmm. right? It, there's a lot of activism where activists are, you know, publicly trying to encourage the company to take certain steps. When they launch, when they launch a proxy fight, that's them officially saying, "You're nominating these directors. We, as investors, are nominating these directors, and it's going to go to a vote of the stockholders and see who the directors are that they want to have." Um, it used to be, and the, those proxy fights took place. The company had its own proxy card, and the activists had their own proxy card. And they were sort of fighting proxy cards and the, there was one color proxy card for the company mm -hmm. and another proxy card. And so it made it very difficult for investors to pick and choose and say, well, I want some, I want these directors from the management card, but I want these directors from the activist card. And, and so the SEC adopted rules that allow there to be only one proxy card, even though there's different proxies and both sides are fighting and share and, and espousing their views on why you should vote for their directors. At the end of the day, there's only one proxy card. So you can mix and match. And if there's that's a universal proxy card, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of people, it went into effect for proxy fights last year in 2023. A lot of people thought that activist campaigns would increase. Well, it's still just as expensive <laughs> to bring a proxy, a, a proxy fight. And, and last year we did not see a large increase of activism of proxy fights, as it were, there was activism, but not proxy fights. Wait, uh, can you explain that? Because I always thought yeah. that one of the reasons why it was so expensive is if you did your own proxy, you as an investor had to pay for the mailing and, and you right. had to spend a million dollars to do all this stuff. But if still, it's in the in the universal proxy, now the company sends it. So it should be cheaper, but maybe explain why not. It, it's not cheaper because the the one of the one of the requirements of universal proxy is that the activists have to send out their own proxy statement. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't save them. It sends them sending out the proxy card. They still have to send out their own competing proxy statement. Mm -hmm. And it still takes millions of dollars to draft that proxy statement and to explain why they think they've got it right and not the company. So it's only one piece of paper that they mm -hmm. don't have to mail. As a, <laughs> okay. They still have to mail the underlying everything yeah. else. There is still a fight. Yeah, It's just not a fight over the proxy card. So be because of that, it's still as expensive to bring an activist campaign. And last year, the deadline for a lot of nominations was right around the time of Silicon Valley, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, I should say. And, oh, okay. And and I think there were a lot of activists, you know, a lot of wild swings in stock prices all at once, and not just for Silicon Valley Bank, but also for all the companies that that had money tied up at Silicon Valley Bank. And there was just a lot of market uncertainty for a couple of weeks. And that led to a lot of activists saying, this is not the right time to bring a fight. We're gonna sit on the sidelines. A lot of, there were some activist funds as well as other funds that went out of business because of the investments that they had made. And so uh, it was a challenging time. Now, what does that mean for this year? We may see an uptick in activism. I don't think that we're expecting to see a wild uptick in activism, but there, there are definitely campaigns being brought um, there are campaigns being brought for for technology companies and biotechnology companies. That's always going to be the case. But I think I don't think we're expecting 
a, a wide upswing in activism this year necessarily, and certainly not not because of universal proxy. Okay. Uh, there are so many other topics in this report. I, I do recommend anyone who's interested in governance to take a look at it. There are questions on ESG, on stockholder proposals, on executive compensation. We're not going to cover everything just because it would take us uh, such a long time. But let me ask you a separate question. Looking ahead, what key governance issues should these companies be preparing for in the next few years, in your opinion? Yeah, uh, you know, we've talked about them already. One is climate disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, California. So let's think. Let's let's set the stage. We talked about the SEC trying to adopt rules as of today in February. It hasn't happened yet. We'll see if it does um, before the election at the end of the year. Um, but Europe has already adopted climate disclosure rules mm -hmm. that apply to U.S. companies who have a significant amount of revenue that they bring in in Europe. And those rules require greenhouse gas emissions disclosure. And it's not, you know, for European companies, that disclosure will come earlier than for non-European companies, but it's coming. California also last year uh, established climate disclosure rules for companies that do business in California, which is a very low threshold. Do you sell your product in California? Do you have offices in California? Then you probably do business in California. Um, but but at a certain revenue level, those rules have now been challenged. This week, we heard that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was challenging those rules in federal court. And so we'll see what happens there. The, the, the SEC rules will certainly be challenged if they are, if and when they are adopted. I think the conventional wisdom is there. But But at the end of the day, as I said, what really drives disclosure from, from a company perspective when it's not required by the SEC is investor requirements. Mm -hmm. And I think investor appetite to know about climate disclosure is there. And so whether it's whether it's legislated mm -hmm. or whether it's it's nudged by the investors, we're going to see more climate disclosure and climate risk and and it's something that boards need to be aware of. I think the other topic that we've talked about that I think is going to be a major governance issue for boards in the coming years is AI. How mm -hmm. does how how do we use AI we, we didn't talk about it, but the boards should be asking about the ethical implications of AI and and what you know what does it mean for the company, for its products, for employees. It's an it's an opportunity, as most things are. It's an opportunity for the company to see savings and to automate processes and practices that that otherwise now take a long time for some companies to handle. It also comes with risks and with uh, with with some ethical questions about okay, what are we? How are we turning over this? You know, the crown jewels to a machine. So yeah, and, and you know, one last question before we jump into the rapid fire questions. One other area that has become a very important uh, part of the uh, public company side has been the an increase in antitrust requirements, and the FTC and the DOJ have been much stronger in terms of going after the large companies. With AI, it also seems that it's going to be a big company play. I mean, we see the top companies spending billions of dollars and it, it, antitrust in the future. And I tell my students that if you want to have a full-time practice, <laughs> antitrust is a great place to get in because uh, it's going to be a big and long fight. Uh, do you think that there's going to be more activity here? And I also realize that it could change depending on 
the new president, right? Like the, the, there is presidential election will impact this. Unfortunately, it's become political. But but is that something that you also think about? And has that permeated into boardrooms? Absolutely. The, the, we're in a high enforcement environment right now, regardless of of the type of law. Um, mm -hmm. Every aspect from the securities laws to FTC, to consumer protection, to privacy, to antitrust, as you said, uh, we're in a high enforcement environment and every federal and I think every state regulator, regulatory board or agency mm -hmm. is, is trying to figure out how, how they can regulate AI and, and what aspects of AI they need to be responsible for. So um, that could change, like you said, with a new administration next year. I think some aspects of it, though, will remain even mm -hmm. uh, it's I don't think even a, a Republican administration can just ignore AI and say, well, we're not you know, we're going to let that just play out. Um, you can be as non-regulatory, as non-enforcement as you want. But I think there are it because it is an, an evolving area. I think it's something that every agency is going to want to look at. Um, well, and, and also uh, just because the Magnificent Seven are just becoming more and more relevant. I think it's 25% of the S&P 500. So these companies are big, $3 trillion, $2 trillion yep. companies, like people never saw that. All right, let's finish up with the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? You know, I love The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. He mm -hmm. was a Lebanese poet philosopher, and uh, I was introduced to it uh, in college. And it's one that I go back to time and time again for just some really awesome insight about life and people and growing up. And it's it's one that I always go look to. Okay. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? There's a number of people, at, especially Wilson Sonsini, who have mentored me in my professional career. The ones that really stick out to me are Steve Bachner. He's one mm -hmm. of our our, our corporate governance partners, um, he's gotten me involved in a lot of the things that he's been involved in, and including the NASDAQ Listing Council. Katie Martin, who is the chair of our firm, is a terrific public company lawyer that I've worked with for many years and, and who gives me a lot of advice and guidance. Jose Macias also is one of my partners who I've led the public company practice with here in the last few years. And um, I worked with him as a junior lawyer and sort of mm -hmm. learned the ropes uh, underneath his wing and and they've been great mentors for me. Okay. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? There is a great quote. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and mm -hmm. our first prophet, Joseph Smith, had a quote that I have, it's always stuck with me. And the quote is, if you start right, it's easy to end right. But if you start wrong, it's very, very difficult indeed to get on the path, on the right path and end right. And it doesn't matter what I, you know, any, anytime I'm starting something new, anytime I'm starting an endeavor, I think about that quote and try to start it right. So hopefully- That's a great one. Yeah, it is a good one. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? <laughs> I don't know if it's unusual. In the last couple, I, I probably about a year and a half ago, I, I was reading about a woman who has run every day of her life for over 20 years, at least a mile every day. Uh -huh. um, and I'm not much of a runner. I like to bike, but I started riding on my bike or on a Peloton for, for 30 minutes every day. And it's something that I just find that I can't live without at this point. I don't know if it's unusual or absurd, but, yeah. but it's one of the things where even if I get home late from traveling, 
I got to go get on the Peloton for half an hour and get my get my ride in. That's great. And a, what a great habit to have. By the way, talking about activism, what a case that Peloton case is too, right? Um, uh, yeah, interesting company there. <laughs> All right, final question. Which living person do you most admire? You know, as I thought about that question, I, I just have to say, and, and it's my parents. Mm -hmm. I love my parents. They are a model of a wonderful couple and of a life. Um, thankfully, I still have them both. And uh, they still, to this day, continue to give me lots of great advice and inspiration. I say all the time, I'm trying to be the boy that my mom thinks I am. <laughs> um, and that is so, that's going to be a lifelong uh, endeavor for me, I'm afraid. Okay. Richard, thank you so much for your time. It was great to catch up with you to learn more about your practice and this report. I do recommend everyone who's interested to uh, take a look and read it. Uh, where can people find it and find you? It's on it's on the Wilson Sonsini website. One of our great clients, Google. Uh, you can Google <laughs> SV150 Corporate <laughs> Governance Report, or or you can Google my name and, and WSGR. And uh, I have a there's a link to it in my biography. Uh, easy to find. Okay. Well, uh, have a great day, great weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Evan. It's great to reconnect. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.